the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, beloved of the Lord, we've reached the gospel of the last judgment. Lent is not very far away. This gospel is read every Sunday, every year on this Sunday. This year I particularly have been play, paying attention to the hymnography of the church as it reflects on this gospel. I think in most places where this gospel would be preached, it probably would be a sermon on charity, the care of the poor. But you notice in the hymnography of the church, there's not a word about that. It's all about judgment. In fact, in the hymnography of the Orthodox Church on this Sunday, the, the judgment seems kind of negative. We kept hearing all these things about river of fire. Just kind of put the fear of the Lord into you. It's very different. I mean, I can imagine this. this I can't imagine it because I used to be there back when I was an Episcopalian, preaching on this text. Very different from preaching on it as an orthodox. Very different. 180 degrees of variance. The sort of sermon I would have preached back then. Back then it would have been a, so a sermon on social justice. And certainly one can get that from the text. But it's interesting that in the hymnography of the Orthodox Church which comments on this text, there's not one word about social justice. Not at all. It's all about the fear of judgment. I want to give you three points this morning, if I may. Probably your immense surprise. The first is the Son of Man. At the end of time, the Son of Man appears in all the nations, all the ethnics, Ponta de Ethni, all the nations will be gathered before him. All the nations are going to be gathered before this Benadam, Benadam, son of man. Who in the world is this? To understand this, it's necessary to go back to the book of Daniel, which appears to be the last book of the Hebrew scriptures to be written. In fact, so late that it's not even written in Hebrew. It's written in Aramaic. It's the only one of the books of the Hebrew Bible that is written in, not in Hebrew, but in Aramaic. Daniel is a prophet of the last times who describes the final verdict on history by this Ben-Adam, this son of man. Now think about this. Because it's rather surprising, given our modern notion, that history itself will be the judge. I mean, I keep hearing this all the time, particularly in politicians. How will we be judged by history? Are you concerned about that yourselves? May I have a show of hands of those you're really concerned about how you're going to be judged by history? I see no signs that the people down the road are going to be any more intelligent than the people around now, and that's not encouraging. 
fact, it seems to me if we are going in a certain direction, it's toward idiocy. I really don't care what history says about me, nor should you. See, because history is not going to be the judge. History is going to be judged. The judge appointed by God is the one that Daniel calls the Ben-Adam, the son of man. And when this son of man appears, who in the parable is identified as the Melech, the king, when he appears, all the nations will be assembled before him. Let's think about that a little bit. Jesus identifies himself as this son of man. That's a big claim for a Galilean carpenter. <laughs> a human being, a particular time and place, from a little town called Nazareth in Galilee. He's going to judge all the nations, and he's going to judge them by his standards. The people of Sri Lanka are not going to be judged by Buddhist standards. The people of Arabia are not going to be judged by Muslim standards. The Chinaman is not going to be judged by Confucian standards, nor the Greek by Stoic standards. All the nations are going to be judged by one standard, a standard established by this Galilean Jewish carpenter whom God has appointed son of man. Panta de ethne, he says, all the nations will be assembled before him. Who are these nations? These nations in Matthew 25 are identical to the nations in Matthew 28. In Matthew 28, Jesus says to go forth and make disciples of Panta ta ethne, of all the nations. And that is our task. That's our task in this world, beloved in the Lord, to prepare the world, all the nations, for the final judgment. That is our task. Let me come to point two. This one a little more subtle. In fact, even the title suggested subtlety. Logos and the moral law. This is an old philosophical question. What is the root of the moral law? Is the moral law determined by decree? In other words, are things good because God says so? Or are they bad because he says so? Is murder bad because God says it's bad? Is stealing bad because God says it's bad? If so, morality is rooted in will and the assertion of will. Or the other possibility, does God say it's bad because it's bad? Does God say it's good because it's good? Because if that's the case, the moral law is rooted in wisdom, God's perception of truth. 
is the root of law, the assertion of will, or the perception of wisdom. Wisdom or power. Wisdom or power. In the tradition of the Bible, the moral law is rooted in logos. It's rooted in God's word. God's word not just as an assertion, not just as a proclamation, but God's word as an, a perception. Now, is this an important question? Is this an important question? I asked this question within, within the first week or so of any philosophy class I've ever taught. Considered this an absolutely essential question. The first question I asked was an earlier formulation of the same question. Do birds fly because they have wings? Or do they have wings in order to fly? Now, is there logos in the thing? Or simply ability? I began every philosophy class I ever taught. First lecture, that was the first question I asked. Do birds fly because they have wings or do they have wings in order to fly? Invariably, a little hand would go up and trembling in the back. What about penguins? <laughs> As though I was trying to make a point about birds. <laughs> I'm not trying to make a point about birds. <laughs> okay. Take the birds out of there. Do we have molars in order to chew? Or do we chew because we have molars? I mean, that's. <laughs> Well, but about somebody doesn't have any teeth. Well, I don't. <laughs> it's not about. It's not a question about birds or teeth. By the way, I took those questions from Aristotle. I'm not smart enough to make up a question like that. Okay. Is something good because God says it's good, or does God say it's good because it's good? In other words, is the structure of reality rooted in logos? Is it rooted in the true davar Adonai? The true word of God, word as perceptive. See, this is also an essential question because it has to do with the being of God. Is God, first of all, omnipotent and then wise? Or is he wise and then omnipotent? It's a question about God. It's also an anthropological question. Is man defined by his will? Or is defined by his noose, his perception of truth. Those who believe that history will be our judge simply mean whoever comes to power in the future will have the say. Nietzsche called this the will to power. The will to power. Where human beings are defined by their power. Economic power social power, military power, political power. Let me push the question to you another way. Is human nature so, so structured that human perfection consists in the assertion of power? Are we put together that way? There's a whole bunch of people who believe we are. Is that what human beings are? Are they structured that way? That 
Their perfection consists in the acquisition of power. Let me give you an illustrating question on that, an illustrating point. Just take one point. And I bring up this point solely for the purpose of illustrating the question I've been asking you. Take the abortion question. Take the abortion question. Take that. I take that because I'm presuming in this, in this congregation that will be clear. I'm presuming in this congregation that nobody this last election voted for a pro-abortion, pro-choice candidate. I'm presuming that. Okay. If I raise that question somewhere else, I'm going to get a different answer. But I don't expect a different answer in this congregation. Does a right to choose determine the moral law? Something so abstract, a right to choose, something I've never actually seen before, something I can't grab. It doesn't have the taste to it. It has no sound to it. It's just out there, a right to choose. This right to choose is simply the assertion of power. Does the right to choose determine the moral law? If so, then the difference between right and wrong is simply a matter of who has the power. If it's a matter of who has the power, the powerless will invariably lose. The abortion question goes to the very heart of this matter of logos. Because the abortion question is a symptom of a far deeper social divide. How do we treat someone who is hungry, naked, homeless, a stranger, when that person cannot vote? <laughs> well, a non-voter. How do we treat those who are hungry, naked and homeless when they have no political power? Is the moral question in the instance of abortion a matter of power or of wisdom? In this respect, I must insist with you, probably no one else is going to tell you this, this cannot be determined by a Supreme Court. Supreme Court cannot determine this. In the title of Richard Weaver's book, ideas really do have consequences. Someone who used to be in this parish and has moved away to Colorado wrote to me yesterday, she had just finished reading Richard Weaver, Ideas Have Consequences, and she found that it was a totally transforming experience. Back when I began teaching at Bellarmine College back in the 60s, that book was required reading. In one course or another, during the course of four years, one had to read that book. Ideas have consequences. Matthew 25, beloved is a parable about what it means to be a human being. It's a parable of anthropology. We all know that if unborn infants were able to vote, it would certainly have been a prohibition against abortion on both the political platforms this past year. If, if, if infants, unborn infants, had a right to vote, it would all be quite 
settled politically. Nobody's going to give up a million and a quarter new votes willingly. But that's an illustration of the deeper question. What is it? What is it that makes that wrong? What is it that makes killing an unborn infant wrong? It's not simply the assertion of power, political power. It's truth. It's the perception of truth. We believe that all human beings are made in the image and likeness of God. And that's the whole burden of today's gospel, isn't it? I was hungry. I was hungry. You fed me. I was thirsty. You gave me to drink. I was naked and homeless and a stranger. And you took care of me. Let's come to point three. Point three is my own thesis, which I'm stealing. At least I'm giving him credit for it. I'm stealing from a writer named Georges Bernanos, The Diary of a Country Priest. The last line of that wonderful book, when the country priest is dying. He's dying without the sacraments. You know, that's, that's, the, that's the population that most likely to die without the sacraments are the priests. Well, who do you call? Who do you call? There's an old, there's an old saying, which I remember hearing as a child, sacerdotis soars, improvisa mores. But the lot of the priest is an unprovided death. <laughs> anyway, the country priest is dying at the end of the book. And there's no priest around because he's just out in the country. He's a village. He's the, the only one around who can give the sacraments is him, and he's dying. His last words are, la grace est partout. Grace is everywhere. Grace is everywhere. They asked the question in this morning's gospel, Lord, when, when? Everybody asked that question, when? When did we see thee hungry? When did we see thee naked? When did we see thee in prison? See, it's always a question of when. The instance, the occasion, the opportunity. Life is full of what the Greeks called keri, which, means, which is plural, which means times, selected time. Life consists in a series of whens. And a when always comes something of a surprise. This kairos is an instance of discovery. There are folds within existence. It's not just, it's not just a, a straight sheet. There are folds within it. And there are surprises enclosed in those folds. One is terribly surprised if it comes into a situation and he, didn't have, he had no idea until it was unfolded to him what was there. Because according to the scriptures, wisdom lurks everywhere. Wisdom lurks everywhere. Wisdom is behind every tree. Wisdom is under every rock. Wisdom, according to the book of wisdom, 
a, work, a book of second century before Christ, the Book of Wisdom, sometimes called the Wisdom of Solomon. According to this book, wisdom reaches from end to end mightily and disposes all things sweetly. Wisdom reaches from end to end mightily and disposes all things sweetly. The difference between the righteous and the damned in today's parable boils down to this. Who, which ones, lived as good human beings? Because you notice that not a single person, not a single person in this morning's gospel recognized the Son of Man during their lifetimes. Both the just and the damned, none of them recognize the Son of Man. Okay. Both of them ask, when? When? None of them recognized it. Wisdom was hidden so deeply within the structure of human experience. So what then prompted the moral response of those who fed the hungry, clothed the naked, sheltered the exposed? What prompted them to do this? What prompted them to do this? I won't presume to ask the, answer the question. Whatever it was, this compassion shown toward the weak, the sick, the naked, the hungry, was an expression of wisdom in the availability of grace. In the final judgment, the great assizes before the great white throne, when all the nations are gathered and the sheep and the goats are forever separated, the advantage will not be on the side of the powerful. That is clear as day in the gospel. In the final judgment, the advantage will not be on the side of the powerful. What Christ says about occasions provided by history is this. I was there all along. I was there all along. The kingdom of God is likened to a treasure hidden in a field. It's concealed. The ubiquity of grace and of wisdom is simply an abstract expression of the ubiquity of Christ our Lord. This Jew who will judge the world the Danielic son of man, into whose hands God placed final judgment for all of history. So to him who loved us and washed us from our sins by his blood, made us kings and priests unto his God and Father, in the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen.